We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. For you today, we have something of a creative jack-of-all-trades, multiple award-nominated crime writer Eric Beatner, who's written more than 25 novels and 100 short stories. A former screenwriter and filmmaker, Eric now works as an editor and producer in Los Angeles, receiving five Emmy nominations so far and working predominantly on unscripted reality shows like The Amazing Race, The Bachelor, and Top Gear. A film school grad and a voracious film buff, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Eric, on Film Noir and Anthony Mann. But before we jump into that, I'd like to say welcome and ask how you're doing today and how you've been coping with the ongoing pandemic. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Jen. I, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the, the, your time because I know I basically bullied my way onto your show oh, no. <laughs> on Twitter. I was like, Ooh, pick me, pick me. I know a lot about movies. So, oh, uh, no, I was glad to do it. And Jed and Jordan had the nicest things to say. So, yeah, that's good. Good to hear. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've, I feel almost a little guilty for how easily the, the pandemic and, and quarantining has gone for me. I, you know, I'm everything I do from my day job to, you know, writing and stuff, it's all solitary activities. And uh, so the idea of being forced to be trapped in my house is almost like, yeah, no, I can do that. That's fine. <laughs> so I'm, like I'm one step away from the guy who would like have a bomb shelter in his backyard as a place to hang out. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's been a full year this week, actually, since I started working from home. So I've been very lucky that I, I, I'm able to work from home. I think the mm -hmm. whole industry uh, in Hollywood post-production has been has made the quickest and perhaps easiest transition because it's honestly been one of those things for a decade now. We've been saying, oh, you're all going to be working from home. Everyone's just going to be cutting from home. And it hasn't happened. But now that the industry was forced to confront it, I can see editors working remotely as kind of the way going forward. I mean, if I don't need to fight LA traffic for yeah. two hours a day, if I don't, if the production doesn't need to rent all the office space for the edit bays, it's, it's actually been a pretty smooth transition. And uh, you know, as things are starting to open up, I know that the season of uh, top gear that I'm on now, we just started, I'm only in my third week and I know I'm going to be working from home for the duration of the, the season all the way through the summer. So, 
you know, I've, I, t- I know a lot of other editors who are all working from home and with, frankly, no plans to go back to an office yeah, real that's soon. Good. Yeah. Very good. Well, beyond Top Gear, are you working on anything new, any new writing or projects? I know you have a podcast. Anything you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, I, I have a podcast called Writer Types, uh, where I interview crime and mystery authors. It's been a ton of fun. I've been doing it for about three years now and uh, have gotten to talk to some of my absolute favorite writers and a whole lot of people that were new to me. Uh, you know, I've talked to people in other countries and it, that's okay. been a, a fantastic thing. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm always writing. I'm, I'm about two thirds of the way through a, a new novel now, and I'm, I'm in a bit of a transition period. I'm, I'm on the hunt for a new agent. And uh, I realized today that after my latest book came out in January called Two in the Head, I don't have anything on the books slated to come out. And that it's honestly been about eight years I think, oh, wow. since I haven't known what the next release is going to be. But uh, I've got five completed novels. The one I'm working on will be the sixth. Uh, so hoping to find a new agent or go through the process. I'm just, I'm trying to let go and let the process happen and not stress about it. That's what I'm focused on right now. (laughs) That's amazing. Five novels. So anyone listening, give them a call basically is what we're saying. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Have have novels ready to go. (laughs) Incredible. Wow. Well, for your topic today, you fittingly selected another jack of all trades and genres as well. And director Anthony Mann, who started as an actor, then eventually worked his way into directing screen tests, including for Gone with the Wind. He worked on some masterpieces as an assistant director, like Sullivan's Travels, and then became a filmmaker in his own right. He worked in all genres from mainstream to biopic to anti-war movies and beyond, but his best work seemed to be in two distinct, highly stylized modes of screen storytelling, film noir and the Western. And in fact, some of his best Westerns are veritable noir hybrids or Western noir, as Criterion Channel likes to call it. But today we're going to take a look at four of his traditional noir films, some that many would consider B-level film noirs, and one that is, I think, one of his most well-known and definitely one of his best movies. So the films include Desperate, T-Men, Raw Deal, and Side Street. But before we get into those, what is it about the films and career of Anthony Mann that fascinates you most? Well, I think he is someone that you can see his growth as a filmmaker from those early films, uh, yeah. because you know this this cluster of films that that we picked, I to me, is a part of the most impressive, most consistent run of high quality film noir that, of any director. Mm-hmm. And I think you know people talk they they throw Billy Wilder. He made Double Indemnity. He made. Uh, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. But nobody but man had such a run of just back to back to back films that are so amazing. Um, But I, you know, like you said, he's, he's this multi-genre director. I mean, he did musicals. He Mm -hmm. he, he did like all the different genres that, that you mentioned, but to see him, you know, 
thrive in like you say these the genre pictures where you you can tell where his sensibilities were best applied um and Very i think because i'm i'm going through I don't, I don't know if you're like me jen i'm going to assume you are because i have a ton of books where of you know old films and stuff and i have little check marks next to the ones that i've seen and i'm <laughs> a, a little obsessive about that thing could be a problem but um i've been going through you know all the books on film noir I get to, I, like the the main one uh, is the Spencer Selby book just called you know the Dark City Film Noir mm-hmm. and it has 490 films in there. I got to the end and I watched every single one of those and I was like, ooh, where do I go next? So I got this guidebook and it's just called Crime Films of the 40s and 50s and it's oh, just wow. it's literally just a list of it's like 1500 films. So I was like, well, this is the next 20 years <laughs> of my life. Project. So I've been yeah, I've been checking those off. There's a ton of crap there's terrible terrible movies mm-hmm. you know the routine programmers the the truly b movies you know like this 62 minute prc yeah. film stuff so i've been watching a lot of junk mm-hmm. but i'm a completist and so especially going back and revisiting these films in anticipation of this you do see that man has such a directorial eye he has he he puts his stamp on things he has mm-hmm. visual motifs that he follows through in all of his films. So you start to see, you know, it gets into that sort of auteur theory where he has as much to me anyway, he has as much of a distinct visual style as an Alfred Hitchcock, you know, mm-hmm. as a, a, any number of people that you can point to in that auteur vein. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, he's doesn't get enough credit for it. I, I think, you know, I, I will pick an Anthony Mann Western over a John Ford Western almost any day. And, mm-hmm. and in the Western world, that can be sacrilege, but <laughs> I'll stand by it. <laughs> hey, I just chose Man of the West in my pandemic movie club that Jed and Jordan are in. I was like, nope, we're doing that. And that was, I had been wanting to choose that for a while anyway. And knowing we were going to be talking about Anthony Mann, it was like, perfect, a tie-in. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. No, such a good yeah. one. That it's it's good that that one's it gets a little too stage bound for me. It gets it's very oh, really? claustrophobic. It, well, it gets claustrophobic, but I also think that's kind of the point. <laughs> you know? He loves claustrophobic filmmaking, like very in everyone's faces, and yeah, yeah. Well, and that's that's one of the things that, that I really love about him. Uh, and this is getting real like film school nerdy, but just like you say, he uses foreground elements so mm-hmm. frequently. There's almost always something in front of the characters. Yep. He's shooting through things. He's shooting behind things. Mm-hmm. Again, like watching all of these, you know, especially like I've been watching a lot of series, film, all, like the crime doctor films, the lone wolf films, things like that. And they're just very, okay, fine. They only had seven days to shoot it or whatever, but someone walks into a room and they sort of meet in the center of the room and they stand there and they do their dialogue. And it's, and it's, it's all very proscenium. Mm-hmm. But man is always, he, he, I think he was a master at blocking. He was a master at framing multiple characters. And part of that is, is these foreground elements. He's always, he he's, loves putting a character right up next to the lens. Yes. Almost in profile or even like the back of their heads when the focus is on the guys that are in the background. And, and it's just, again, like you say, you're watching these films again, you realize, okay, there's there's a director at work here. There's someone who is thinking very specifically and working in conjunction with his DP. Oh, you know, a couple of these films that we're talking about, you know, he worked time and time again with John Alton. Yep. So mm-hmm. 
they, yeah. Yeah. And so, so they, they get these little visual motifs that, that they repeat time and time again. And, and it just, it elevates the films uh, so much to me. Very true. Yeah. You were mentioning how there's always something there or shooting through at people. People are usually like off center in his movies or there's yeah. outside light sources. A lot of it seems to come from like neorealism stuff that was happening, you know, over in Italy for anyone listening who isn't aware the Rossellini pictures, stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot to these. You can watch them just as fun crime movies, or you can kind of geek out on some of these elements. And some of them will jump out at you when you watch them on repeat. Like the third time yeah. you watch it, you might pick up on something else. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's just to get two two specific things. Like there's a there's a fight scene in Raw Deal between Dennis O'Keefe and John Ireland, sort sort of near the end. And you know, it's it's in. Like, like you say, like it's in a visually crowded, it's in that back room of that uh, taxidermy place. So it's this room mm-hmm. that's, it's full of junk and there's things hanging on them and he's shooting through like netting for part of it. Yes. And it's basically, it's a room with no lights. The only light sources is coming in through windows and doors because mm-hmm. they turn the lights off to, to ambush the guy. But so, um, and yes, it's in the service of hiding the stuntmen. And we yeah. can all acknowledge that. But he's basically, he found a way to make this really convincing, pretty extensive fight scene in a dark room. I mean, it's more black yeah. than light, so mm-hmm. things like that. And then I noticed there was also a scene in, in watching uh, T-Men again, is a scene where O'Keefe is trailing, uh, you know, uh, Wally Ford. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's covered with voiceover. So it's, it's all sort of B-roll shots. But there's a couple of, of shots where like you literally, the person's face is completely black. They're completely oh, yeah. silhouetted and blacklit. But it's very effective in this way of showing these guys sneaking through the underworld. It's, you know, because obviously, you know, we're portraying the dark side of uh, society. We're portraying yeah. the, the, the underground, the criminal element. And it's this, these subtle visual things that are so effective. But you would think, you got to think that someone at like a really big studio. I mean, you know, both of those films, Rodiel and T-Men were made by Eagle Lion. It's a pretty mm-hmm. small you know, independent yeah, producer. Republic. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, can you, can you imagine screening dailies for LB Mayer and he'd be like, why is it, why can't I see his face? What's going yeah. on? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, we should probably begin too with this potential spoiler warning when it comes to these movies. And while yeah. of course you can feel free to reference any movie at any time, I thought it'd be, maybe best to go chronologically through them for yeah. starters, beginning with one of his two 1947 releases, the film Desperate, starring Steve Brody as an independent truck driver for hire who suckered into becoming the wheelman during a warehouse robbery masterminded by Raymond Burr, who he uses so well in these movies. I mean, it's yeah. a far cry from like Perry Mason, <laughs> Raymond Burr. It's like more in line, actually even more sadistic than like rear window Raymond oh, Burr. Yeah. When a cop in Desperate is killed during this heist after Brody tries to signal the man and one of the crooks, Burr's brother is arrested and sentenced to death. Burr stops at nothing to get revenge on the man whom cops assume was an active participant in the robbery, Steve Brody, trying to get his pregnant wife to safety at her aunt and uncle's farm in Minnesota. Brody tries to stay alive and prove his innocence, 
even though Burr and Jason Robards cop are hot on his trail. I've always really liked this one. The photography by a live by night cinematographer, George E. Discant is inventive, fresh, and there's a brilliant sequence with a swinging overhead light on the staircase at the end that I just love. It's a very much an urgent, you are here, lovers on the run type of a film that nearly jumps right into the action. You get like a little bit of him in his regular world or, you know, to use like the Joseph Campbell, his, his normal world every day, you only get a little bit of it. And then you're right into the thrust of the plot. So I've always really liked this one. Eric, what were your thoughts on Desperate? Well, full disclosure, uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording. My, the, the wall that I'm facing is covered in film noir posters. And so I'm staring every day that I work. I have a raw deal poster, a one sheet right over my computer. And then I can, off to my left here, I have a, an insert poster of Desperate. So I love this movie. Okay, great. <laughs> um, I mean, I think this is, if you're going to talk about what defines a film noir, you could do worse than to cite a film like Desperate because you've got ordinary guy thrust into the underworld. You've got a very, there's an interesting kind of through line with, I think a lot of his films, I mean, in film noir in general, there's this sort of vague distrust of the police where you you sort of, you say, well, can't you just go to the cops? It's like, well, if I do that, they're going to think I'm the murderer. And everyone who thinks that the cops are going to think they're the murderer is convinced that, that means you're instantly going to the electric chair. There's yeah. no, even if you know you're innocent, Yeah. there's no chance of proving that. <laughs> so everyone's very distrustful of the police in the 1940s. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I love the sort of twist on it because like you say, Burr is, he's out for revenge, but he's also, he's trying to clear his brother. Yeah, it's a nice, it's like a tender portrayal in that regard, but it's also scary as hell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, yeah. It, it, you know, the but it's usually you, you have the, the put upon hero, the innocent Rube, who's trying to clear his name and Steve Brody, yeah. and, you know, he, he's Burr. doing that as well. But Burr also has, like, he's he's trying to clear his brother of one crime that mm-hmm. happened in the commission of another crime. Yes. <laughs> so, and can we talk about how lucrative furs were in the forties and fifties? The idea of boosting a truckload of furs drove so many major crimes in that period. It did. Yes. It was more than diamonds. It seemed like everybody was all oh about the God. furs. Yeah. yeah. And, and furs were the status, like every woman, wanted a mink if you had a mink oh you made it that was oh my gosh that was the thing (laughs) yeah we're gonna get there again with side street he wants to get his wife a coat and right you know becomes a criminal yep yeah 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 (laughs) but no i mean desperate is it's it's so good because i do think you also get and and this is you know very much a hallmark of of phil noir it's not just steve brody and his wife's story it's it's not just the story of, of the innocence you know, Burr and his crew almost get equal screen time in, yeah. in this film. And and I mean, we have to talk about their hideout, their their lair that they lurk in. It's <laughs> I mean, it's so dark. It's got, you know, lit by just that one overhead lamp. Oh, it's yes. just so amazingly noir. And I think that was the thing, like man, when man stepped into the noir phase 
in the you know mid to late 40s and this is you know, late 40s when it was really really taking hold you can put i think 1947 had probably the most number of films that you can call film noir yes. of of any year so you know he he wasn't there at the beginning but when he stepped in he stepped in with both feet and he was like oh you want it you know stark black and white you want it really really dark i can do that so this this yeah. is a great example of that very true. Well, he'd kind of been playing with some of the elements of noir, even in his earlier stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah, he knew exactly what he wanted to do when he got his shot, for sure. Yeah. When we we're talking about, and we can go back and forth on these, uh, T-Men is his next one that was made in 47. I'm not sure. I should have looked up the exact date of which one opened first in 47. It went alphabetically here. But I, I'm pretty sure Desperate was first. It was? Okay, yeah. great. Well, he called T-Men his first quote-unquote real film as mm. a director. And I found that really interesting because I think it discounts some of the movies he was making before that that I think had some great elements to them. Yes, and T-Men, it's interesting because it's usually labeled a B-noir or just a quick independent type of a film and while it is you know next to like some of the higher dollar ones that were made in the era it was still the budget was like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the film so yeah he was using some of the great b-roll and documentary aspects and some of the neorealism elements in this and yeah. i think it's an interesting blend of high and low art as well yes yeah, and T-Men has that that semi-documentary thing that was so popular at the time. You know, it's it, it's got the the introduction from the actual Treasury yeah. agent at the beginning, and and I'm glad that that did not hang on as a device for very long. They're always <laughs> yes. a little clunky. <laughs> I know the voice of God narrative. Yes. Yeah, and and because I, you know, I think anyone will agree that film picks up once the voiceover starts to drop away. Yeah, and, and very not much. Explaining as much, but you know, it, it's it's a device to get us in, and and like you say, you know, you get a very perfunctory backstory in voiceover for you know mm -hmm. the the two main undercover guys, and it's and they just they give you here, here's here's who he is, here's where he where he's from, how long he's been with the department. And that's all you need to know about him now. Go. Yep, that's it. Yeah, yeah, you don't really need to know much else. It's kind of another recurring theme is a man and his profession. Like right. he is good at his job. That's all you really need to know about him. You don't need to know like where he grew up or anything like that. Just you're thrust into it. Yeah, so. except when you see, oh, he's got a wife at home. Yes. And you go, oh, no. Yeah. I know it's like a war movie where they pull up the picture of their girlfriend. You're like, yep. uh oh, yeah. <laughs> this guy's toast. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, this was his first collaboration as a filmmaker with the legendary film noir cinematographer, John Alton. It's an artful docudrama, as we were mentioning, a police procedural thriller based on actual case files. And T-Men, par for the course with man, and just like we saw in Desperate, seems to revel just as much, if not more, in the seedy underworld of its villains as it does its heroes. And in this case, you see the work 
come alive only when we hit the shadows of like the sweaty Turkish baths and the <laughs> sinful nightclubs where two undercover treasury officers try to infiltrate and bust an organized crime run counterfeit money ring in Los Angeles. While the docudrama elements in the T-Men's office as they're informed of their mission, just like Eric was mentioning, the procedure tend to drag or pull you out of the storyline. Once you're in with the gang, Man and Alton are in their element, having fun with the off-center character placement profiles, those unseen light sources, which cast alarming shadows on the proceedings. It is a must-see for serious noir fans, just from a purely aesthetic level alone but it's also a very entertaining film yeah 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 i mean i this film to me has some of the most iconic images of of the noir period i mean you've got that whole opening that opening shot it's it's in the first you know minute of the film where charles mcgraw emerges from the shadow and and not just a shadow i mean just ink black and his face (laughs) just sort of appears uh, you know, and that whole that whole opening scene. Well, like you, you don't know who these guys are yet. It's no. just the voiceover is telling you that there's a criminal element loose in Los Angeles, and you see a guy get gunned down. And you know, between that shot of McGraw and then the actual shooting takes place, he's like he's shooting low angle between the guy's legs. Yeah, so all these all these Lots really odd angles for for that era, and and so much darkness. I mean, it looked like Alton whether by design or by, you know, budget or schedule, it was like, you got two lights, John, what are you going to do with them? Yes. <laughs> like, so there, there are scenes in that, in that film, like you say, like, you know, like the Turkish baths and stuff like that, where it's, it's literally, it's more dark than light. And some of those frames, it's, it's, it's really striking. It very much is. Yes. And it, it goes to, again, we get two men in their profession you have the criminal element. When I watch Anthony Mann's movies, like when I was watching these kind of in quick succession and being a little bit obsessed with the films of Michael Mann, who mm-hmm. kind of credits film noir almost more than the Jean-Pierre Melville movies, which mm-hmm. usually get cited. Though I think he's like protesting a little too much there. I can <laughs> see a little bit of Melville for sure. But when I was watching these back to back, kind of the man and their element and the way you distrust the police in some of these films, like Desperate, I can see a little bit of what he brings to a film like Thief or something when you look back on T-Men. Yes, and some of these other ones. Raw Deal with its love triangle. Like you can just see man kind of looking at some of these elements like, ooh, that would be fun to play with for sure. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, one other thing about this era in in man's career, I mean, I think... T-Man and Raw Deal, you have to take as a pair. You, you almost really can't do. separate them. I mean, they're made back to back. They're both Eagle Lion. Uh, John Alton. S- studio, both with John Alton, both yeah. with the same leading man. Yeah, Dennis O'Keefe. And then it, you stick those two together and watch them sort of of a piece. And they're, they're very interesting, you know, opposite sides of the coin for me because T-Man is, it's elevating, you know, the guys who were doing right it's mm-hmm. you know crime doesn't pay story and at the end of the day whereas raw deal is very much about the criminals and it's about yes. the criminal life but at the same time t-men is about these good guys who have to turn do bad that. in order to yeah. do their job and 
you know, there's, there's those scenes again, like major spoiler, but when O'Keefe is sitting there and having to watch his partner get murdered yeah, and know that it's going to happen. And he's got that moment of decision of like, do I break this case and blow it, but save my partner? Or do I stay under, do I, you know, do quote unquote the wrong thing, let my mm-hmm. partner die, but it means that I can bust right. all these guys, you know, that's a huge moment. Yeah. But, and then you go to raw deal where you've got a criminal who's on the run and he's doing everything wrong, but in the end he's undone by sort of his own conscience yeah. when he has to step up and do the right thing. So it's this, this sort of inverse story in both of these films that I think makes such a really, really interesting pairing. Yeah. Anthony Mann is definitely fascinated by masculinity and especially masculinity in conjunction with violence. Mm. When I read a little excerpt of an interview where he was talking about T-men and how much he said, like, there were certain sequences where he thought, yes, I'm a filmmaker now and this is my film. And he was talking about one of the sequences that really he was proud of was when uh, Dennis O'Keefe gets just the shit kicked out of him uh, as he's undercover and they're kind of testing him and he's, he isn't breaking. And then they throw him in the alley and he has this like smile and it's a smile that can mean a couple different things. Like, yes, I managed to make it in. And also it is smile because it's like, yes, uh, they, I withstood that beating and kind of like, that's what makes me great at my job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and he's, he's got several moments like that in, in the film. I mean, and, you know, and, and getting right up to the end, I mean, O'Keefe is willing to take a bullet in the end to, yeah. to, break, to take these guys out. Cause you know, when, when he's sort of in that final stalking of Charles McGraw on, on the ship, he is basically walking right at it. He's he's like, all right, n- no more nonsense. It's time for you to go down. And if he takes a bullet to the gut in the process, he's going to do it. Yeah, so, yeah. It's 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 interesting uh, you know, how how deeply they commit to the the life that they're committed to, whether they're a cop or a criminal. You know, whether they're yeah. a, a T-man or you know o- O'Keefe's character busting out of jail and and trying to make a run for it in, in raw deal. I mean, he is he's fully committed <laughs> to yes. this life that he's chosen. <laughs> and I he's the he's, he's, same thing. He's going to be the best damn criminal you ever saw. No prison's going to hold him. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. And another link between a lot of these films is the death of one person. Mm. You get like, and how it is either it's somebody by your link to with the hero in terms of their profession or, somebody that they're inadvertently responsible for a death like you kind of get the what is the cost of this type of life they're leading so it's yeah these films have a lot of elements to them that make them really rich to break down yeah well i I, i'm curious how how you feel about i mean because man i think is one of those directors who could be accused of being overly masculine or, or just, he's, he's, he's a very kind of tough guy filmmaker. I mean, maybe not to the extent of, you know, a Sam mm-hmm. Peckinpah or, no. you know, some other people, but I'm always interested in his portrayal of women in, in yeah. his films. I, th- I think raw deal, it, it's, it's the, it's the women's film. It very much end. is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, 
yeah. Claire Trevor is delivering the voiceover. It's sort of it's it's all through through her eyes. It's like you said, it's a love triangle in in the end. Mm-hmm. But then again, like you know, again, I'm sitting here staring at the poster, and Dennis O'Keefe gets top billing, and he's got the biggest you know image on the poster, and and uh, you know he's sort of gets all the you know the juicy gunplay stuff. But to me, it still very much is is a woman's picture, and and a little touches like in T Men. You know, when he gets up, he, I got to talk to the boss and I got to talk to the boss and he it's gets there woman. and it's, and it's a woman and it's, Oh my, it's, it's a little surprising. I mean, not, you know, T-Man is definitely, I think she's about the only one in the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> but I've, I'm curious like, from your point of view, do these, do, does this run of films uh, come across as dismissively masculine or do you think he was inclusive in that one? I think he's, telling the stories he wants to tell and I'm okay with it because uh, it was interesting. I had a conversation that was kind of similar to this a few weeks ago. I watched The Usual Suspects, which was one of my favorite movies growing up with a friend who had never seen it before. And we were talking about it, the fact that, you know, there's Susie Amos is essentially the only woman in the film. And, you know, we were like, it works though, because it's, it's their story. I think it would have seemed a little disingenuous if they decided to just pivot the whole thing on her or made the Susie Amos character like the girlfriend nagging him, like, don't, you're going to get hurt or we don't need you to do that one last job or whatever it is. Yeah. And so I think the way that women are used in the genre or they're given an interesting subplot, like in this film, even though, I mean, it's a small role, but she is the boss. It makes it, I think, all the more powerful and far more unique than, say, Desperate, which I love. You know, it's the wife and she's, her big element in the film is she's pregnant and we need to get her to safety and stuff like that. And so I love that about T-Men and I also really love it about Raw Deal, which is my favorite one of these Anthony Mann noirs by far. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, because uh, I think you also like I, one, probably my favorite Western of his is The Naked Spur. And I think. Oh, great, great female character. Yeah, you look yeah. at Janet Lee in that and, and she, you know, she does spend a lot of the film sort of being tugged by the arm and, and being yes. told yeah. where to go. But it is. It, like you can't remove her from the film. You 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 can't you can't deny that this is a, a, having a female character in that pivot point around these other characters is so essential to the story. And I think and I do think yeah. he does. You know he does portray and especially as we get later into his career like that. I think he does portray those characters as fully fleshed and, and, and central to the story as, as they are, where, like you say, I mean, Audrey Long in, in Desperate is, she's, she's a plot point and she's a little bit along for the ride. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting to see when they have agency and complexity. Like I mentioned, Man of the West earlier, which of course is a very masculine movie, yeah. but the female character in that is given, I mean, a little bit of a plot point there. She's uh, nearly, well, Later on, she is raped off screen. But early on in the film, there's a horrific scene with her where these men terrorize her. And then, you know, you're going to have Gary Cooper the next day kind of give them a dose of their own medicine. But the interesting element with her is that she is very much drawn to the Gary Cooper character who is married and happily married and 
they have a very mature understanding of this attraction. And I think, you know, usually in the genre, she would have been too much of a harlot. Like she was trying to tempt him away from his family. And here it's like, she just is able to say, yes, I'm attracted to you, but of course, you know, we're going to go our separate ways and that's going to be the way it is. And I thought that was a really bold statement for the fifties, the man in the gray flannel suit era to have a woman, have that kind of clear-eyed um, perspective about attraction. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. It's interesting when women in Anthony Mann movies, because they are extremely masculine, are given these really charismatic and more three-dimensional roles than you would assume. Probably looking back on the era. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's it's so hard to to divorce. You know any one director's work just from from the decade that they were working in i mean yeah. so, you know he he might have had his own thoughts and feelings but that's just the, that's the script he was handed and that's the oh, best yes. the best that he was going to get you know? yeah yeah absolutely we can't say like he he was drawn to these because of the female characters right. or anything like that but it is a recurring thing and it's it's definitely an interesting point yes Well, following up the bold experimentation of noir filmmaking and especially cinematography that Anthony Mann and cameraman John Alton did with T-Men is the even more dazzling raw deal from 1948, which is easily my favorite work of Mann noir. As I mentioned, a fatalistic love triangle picture where Claire Trevor busts out Mann frequent star and the star of team men of course dennis o'keefe out of prison and then the two go on the out on the run with o'keefe's younger more innocent crush Anne, played by marcia hunt who's the subject of intense attraction for o'keefe and jealousy for trevor this one is as alluring as the smoky shadowy uniquely textured imagery that is used throughout Similarly, it's unique for going against the noir trend of only giving us voiceovers by the men of noir, as Eric pointed out. In the films, usually it's a man recounting their tragic, doom-filled journey of femme fatales and the psychopaths and lawmen who get in the way. Here, though, it is Trevor who tells us much of the story in voiceover. The film offers uh, her own perspective on a given situation, but with greater context and as events unfold. Again, you have Raymond Burr appearing as an unstable villain who literally plays with fire, a cigarette (laughs) in a man's ear. And oh my goodness, there's another scene off camera with fire where he throws at a woman. It's horrifying. (laughs) Burr in the film has a place on the perfectly named Corkscrew Alley, like you can't get more noir than that. Yep. (laughs) Yes. And we know this trio on the run will cross paths with him soon. The only question is where, when, and who will make it out alive. I love this one since I first saw it, and I'm so glad you chose it because I'm always up to rewatch Raw Deal. So, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, it was so good. I, I think it's uh, it, it revels in a film that's solely about the criminal element. You know, they're they're. O'Keefe is on the run from prison, like you said, and he's, you know, there's the looming threat of the police sort of over everything, but the police are not characters in this. The police are not, you know, you don't see the cat and mouse. It's all about one criminal going up against another criminal and, you know, and Burr, 
doesn't want he's trying to avoid this meetup at all costs because he knows it's yeah. not going to go well for him. No. Uh, you know, but yeah, I, I, one of the things that I think is interesting about this, I think, you know, it's easy for people to think that noir is always an urban setting. And this film is almost, almost entirely takes place, uh, you know, in, in the woods for most of it. And, and yeah. when he's on the run, he's, he's often in rural areas uh, you know, eventually we end up back in the city, but it, it shows you that you don't need the urban jungle to make the noir atmosphere. And, and again, with Alton behind the lens, you've got such great, you know, intense scenes that are literally, you know, they're out by a campfire. Yes. And, uh, you know, here comes this park ranger in to sort of question them. And it's really tense. O'Keefe is hiding behind a tree a few feet away. And you're like, Oh my God, is this guy going to get shot? Is this going to blow <laughs> up? And, and, you know, and then you got Marsha Hunt having to, you know, the, the good girl having to do something again, that's, that's, she has to take, take a little bit of a bad turn, but in the service yep. of saving this guy, you know, she's not going to turn O'Keefe in because it means he's probably going to shoot this innocent ranger. So yeah, it's, it's got so many different, I think, levels to this film in terms of characterization. Uh, and, you know, people like to talk about Joan Crawford or Barbara Stanwyck as sort of the queens of noir. Claire Trevor. Claire Trevor, wow. man. I mean, A, she made so many great, great noir films. And just, it, was there anyone better at playing the tragic heroine? I mean, from the first frame of this film, no. your heart breaks for her. You're yes. like, oh, no, yes. don't love him. He's not going to, he's not going to be yeah. there. And, and, and she knows it, too. Because she says in, in voiceover about how he never says I love you. And there's so many scenes where she just desperately wants yes. a kiss from him and he just won't give it. No. Uh, it's heartbreaking. Yes, I know. Yeah, Dennis O'Keefe, you're so, you play with these women's hearts. You're very <laughs> withholding. Yes. yes. And you brought up um, the outdoors. That's another thing I love about this film. I mean, it isn't high Sierra, but there is quite a bit. Uh, going on in this one out of doors. I mean, the film is, I think, most famous for its imagery. Almost it's early on with the sort of the prison bars and mm -hmm. what it does with shadows. But when we see it and they're outside, it, it makes it more unique and stands out in this era of filmmaking. Like, this is something danger lurks and it can follow you even in paradise essentially, or what yeah. should be. Yeah. 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 And I, I love that, that it's one of those films, like it doesn't draw a, a straight line. It's, you know, I mean, my favorite thing in any story, whether it's a movie or a book is I, I don't want to know where it's going to go. And I think yeah. this film is a great example of that. Cause like we talked about with, with, with T-Men, you see the guy that's about to go undercover and he's got a picture of his wife. There's a part of me that goes, okay, I, yes. I know what's coming. <laughs> I, I, you never know what's coming in this film. And it, no. down to things like there's a great scene where they're hiding out at the cabin and the police, uh, you, you hear sirens and you hear the dogs barking and you're like, oh my gosh, they're coming for him. But they pull a switcheroo. Oh no, it's actually another killer on the run who happens to show up at the same place and then in stumbles with Bissell yeah. and he's got his own. And so you get, you get this like a little mini drama in the middle of the larger drama and stuff like that is, Oh, it's such a great added layer. Yeah. The writing on this one is fabulous. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, co-written by John C Higgins, who also we should note uh, co-wrote T-Man. I mean, again, very, very different films. You get the semi-documentary and then this is just straight up, you know, storytelling. So 
very different films that I think are unified mm-hmm. by the the crossover in in the crew and the cast to to make such great little counterpoints to each other between this and T-Man. Now that we're talking about it being set out of doors or a large chunk of it anyway, it's making me think of some of those other films of this era. Was it On Dangerous Ground with Ida Lupino and uh, High Sierra, of course, and then The Hitchhiker, some of these other movies that did involve the outdoors and be an interesting little film festival that you could do if you're trying to check off your list like Eric of all these great film noir movies yeah yeah well and I I think you know noir is easy to categorize in in broad strokes and and I think you know there are some things that like I don't know where anybody ever associated with like a lonely saxophone with film people always do that be like the lonely it's like these were lush orchestral scores. Yeah. Jazz didn't enter into it until the late fifties. And even then most jazz scores are like kind of avant modern jazz. Score. Like you listen to the jazz that's going on in something like odds against tomorrow or, you know, French film, like uh, elevated, elevated to the gallows. gallows. Yeah. And it's like, these are, it's, it's not one lonely sack. These are like kind of weird off kilter jazz. scores. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that. And the, and again, yeah, I think you're right. The idea that, you know, all, all film noirs are set in a city and all film noirs are set in New York city. It's like, it's just not true. No. Yeah, absolutely. Well, described in silver and Ursini's film noir, the directors as man's cinematic response to Jules Dassin's the naked city. So now we're going over to the city, mm-hmm. which was uh, naked city was released just one year earlier in 1948. 1949's film Side Street uses a similar semi-documentary style that T-Men also did. We are in lower Manhattan location-based approach. Um, We also had in The Naked City. It's interesting to see him go to New York when we have just seen him in California in T-Men. Anyway, back to Side Street complete with the Noor favorite technique of voiceover narration to tell us the story of a young letter carrier played by Farley Granger, who makes the decision to steal a few hundred dollars to make things easier and provide for and pamper his pregnant wife, Kathy O'Donnell. She needs that coat, everybody. We, right. we talked about this. <laughs> Unfortunately, this small crime morphs into a major one when he discovers that he's really stolen a cachet of $30,000 instead of a couple hundred consumed with guilt and determined to return the money minus the small amount that he spent which he feels he'll be able to repay a little every week granger quickly realizes he's in over his head as everything goes wrong and people wind up dead a film with a clear moral about the evils of money and perhaps a lesson not to try to take any shortcuts it is particularly worthwhile for fans of They Live by Night, the Nicholas Ray film, which starred Granger and O'Donnell, and was also shot by George E. Discant, who lends Desperate for Man as well. It also features a really impressively lensed car chase through the streets of New York by cinematographer Joseph Ruttenberg. I liked and I admired it more than I really love it but it's an important work for man. So what do you think of Side Street? 
I love Side Street. I, you okay. know, I think this was one that I, I think it'd probably been the longest since I'd seen it again. And in rewatching, this actually kind of jumped to the top of, of my list in this. You oh, know, interesting. I, I mean, I, I do uh, not like leaps and bounds above others, but I just, okay. you know, and I think story-wise, this is a kind of, noir story that I love of like a, a sad sucker who just gets drawn into a mistake yes. that's and, and just spirals out of control. And I love, I love small stakes things. Like I love the fact that he was trying to steal $200. I know. Like and, I was and, just doing a little crime people. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and, it, and it just goes so off the rails for him. And the other, again, spoiler alert, like that the, when they sink the hooks in, and he's going to give the money back and he's just trying to put things right. And then it turns out that somebody has now double crossed him. The bar owner has now stolen the yes. money from the, the thief. Oh, it's just, it sinks it down into the quicksand even deeper. And I just love it. And I love the location shooting in this film. I, I think yeah. it's yeah, naked city is, is a, a perfect companion piece to this. And I mm -hmm. think the way man opens with those high, shot helicopter shots looking down on Manhattan and you, you like right from the get-go and including this final chase where he does so many of those really really high angles where the cars are so tiny and you just he's definitely trying to show you how small one person is in this giant city and I think that was a major theme of a lot of you know big city films and, and New York City films in particular it was that's you know it's that this is there's a million stories in the naked city kind of vibe to this mm -hmm. and I, I think this film portrays that as well as as anything. Farley Granger too is is such an interesting choice for this because I think like we were talking about, you get the the sweaty masculinity of mm -hmm. Dennis O'Keefe and and oh Charles McGraw in in some of those other films. I mean, you can't get more. It just, you know, like a cinder block of, of masculinity. And of course, Raymond Burr and those other films that we were talking about, who's, I mean, the literal heavy. And, you know, we didn't even talk about Burr and Raw Deal. I swear the costume designers put in extra shoulder pads on him because he's literally he's, he's yes a towering figure in that yeah <laughs> and, and almost entirely shot from sort of waist level looking up mm -hmm. he's, he's so terrifying in this and then you get the side street and farley granger is just he's just he's desperate and panting and sweating all over this movie from the minute he you yeah know, him committing the crime it, it is not an act of uh, confidence in any strategy. He's just, he's nervous and he's sweating and, and the whole thing. So yeah, I think he's the perfect actor to cast in this role as someone who, I mean, you know, doesn't get drawn in over his head. He starts over his head. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, I thought Farley Granger of all the male performances throughout Farley Granger was the one that was really effective in this one. I mean, Dennis O'Keefe is a wonderful actor and Raymond Burr, of course, is yeah. a terrific baddie. But it was Farley Granger when I was watching this one that really made this movie come alive. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, a great if you only know him from Strangers on a Train. Yes. I, I think this this is I, I've, I don't know how you feel about this. I always thought Farley Granger actually would have made a good Norman Bates. Ooh. Yeah, I think he would have. That's a really good point. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, not not to not to take anything away from Anthony Perkins, who was perfect, but I I, I did I did think that I and I always 
it's one of those things I've always wondered since he'd worked with Hitchcock before. I wonder if his name was bandied about or anything when they were casting that film, but forever one for t- to wonder yes. about. <laughs> and I think this one would be a really cool double feature. I believe they even sell a DVD where it is offered alongside They Live by Night with Granger yes. and Kathy O'Donnell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is not uh, They Live by Night, which I prefer, but you know, it's a good film and it's very entertaining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think it's, it's a good, uh, th- those two are a good example of sort of where your mindset is in terms of, of noir style films. Cause I, again, I, I, I kind of prefer side street cause it's a little, I know it's a little grittier. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I, th- I think if you, if you like your, uh, your noir more down in the gutter, it's, it's the same way I feel. I always do this with, uh, with Laura and where the sidewalk ends Two Otto Preminger films, both oh, with okay. Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney. Yeah. So there, there's so much to compare. And mm-hmm. I do think like, do you like your noir in the penthouse or in the gutter? And I think those are, yeah. you can, you can actually do apples to apples on those two films where you, yeah. you stand. I know they're both worth watching, but Laura is one of my favorite movies of all time. So I guess I'm more penthouse or maybe I just am drawn to the more romantic side of noir and Laura and they live by night is, you know, a great version of that. I also yeah. though, when I watch side street, I was just blown away by that car chase at the end of the film. I was watching that thinking, you know, Friedkin is basically a cinephile and basically a walking film professor. And I was thinking about Friedkin and French Connection when I was watching this and thinking, I bet he went back and looked at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got some really impressive stuff. There's there's a couple of near misses with cars where they're they're driving really close (laughs) to each other. Yeah. It's, it's really good. And I think, you know, when you watch so many films of that era, like right at the cusp of, of location shooting becoming more of the thing and, and you see a, a chase like this compared to stuff that was shot in tiny pieces on a city built mm-hmm. inside a soundstage where they could only shoot, you know, a block or a block yeah. and a half at a time. It does make such a big difference when you can, you can pan with the car as it's turning down an alley and stuff, or you can get up on the 50th floor of a building and shoot down and you see the tiny little cars going through this giant cavern of, of the buildings. It, it really is an effective sequence. It's, it's and as a professional editor, it's incredibly well cut too. I think, you know the 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 pace of it and and the mix of like those dangerous looking tight close ups and then constantly popping back out to to those those big wides and then getting getting back inside the taxi where Farley Granger is getting more and more desperate. He's trying to figure out what's what he's going to do to extricate himself from this. I think it's really interesting. And, and you know, a sequence like that again, like that, you see the police cars in pursuit. Always from the exterior. We're, yes. we're not. We're not inside with the cops. We're. We don't care what they think about this. No. They're. It isn't they're, their story. Yeah. Yeah. They're the outside forces, but we're constantly on Farley Granger's face. We're constantly on the cab driver's face, who's having second thoughts, and maybe we should give up. Maybe this is not the thing. You know. Mm-hmm. So he, he knows which faces and which eyes that we're going to focus on, and we're going to get connect with and feel sympathy for in those moments. And like I say, it's, it's, it's not about the cops pursuing. It's not about justice at that point is, can he extricate himself from this situation and get his life back and get back to his newborn son who's waiting at the hospital. Mm -hmm. 
it makes a really, really effective uh, finale to that film. Yeah, and it's really about the dark side of the American dream. It brings us right to Wall Street there. I mean, it's a little bit hitting it on the head with the metaphor, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, and that, that's that's what I love about the, about those small scale yeah. stories. Because I, I, I would put this definitely in the same basket as another film I love called Shield for Murder. Where, I have not seen that one. You haven't seen that? Oh my God. No. Edmund O'Brien, another poster I have right over here. Um, Edmund O'Brien, it's adapted from a William P. McGivern novel. And okay. he plays he plays a cop who he he brings his girlfriend to this new development of tract houses in the suburbs. And he shows her this model home and it's all mm-hmm. tricked out. It's got like a sunken living room and it's got, you know, the <laughs> self-cleaning oven. He's showing her all this stuff. And he desperately wants this American dream. Like you're saying, it's this sort of post-war, this is what it, everything can happen, but he can't get there on a cop salary. Mm-hmm. So he reaches a point where he like busts somebody and he has a joke. Oh, there's a stack of money. I can take this and I can turn bad, but yeah. it's not like, oh, I'm going to buy a yacht and all this. I, I just want a tiny little suburban home. And it's so it's like, it's such small stakes small that they can do such yeah. desperate things. And I just love that from a story point of view. Perfect. Yeah. That would make a really good double feature with this one. It sounds like as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention about Anthony Mann or even movies we didn't discuss today that you wanted to point out to people? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we hit a little bit on his Westerns. And I think as, as impressive as this run of noir films were back to back to back. And, you know, and we skipped over like, you know, films like Border Incident that came between Raw oh, Deal and, and Side film. Street, which is yes. another fantastic film. Yeah, you know, his uncredited uh, work on He Walked by Night, mm-hmm. uh, which was again, sort of in between. Uh, so he just had this incredible run. And then once he got out uh, into the West and uh, on horseback, had another like just a run another where you're like oh my run. goodness how how did yeah. he just one person do all of these films winchester 73 and the furies and the naked spur the far country man from laramie yes. uh you know some some really fantastic uh films so yeah i mean i i think anthony mann is one of those directors that i think uh needs to be talked about in the same reverent tones as john ford or, or billy wilder or, or mm-hmm. hitchcock um you know I've, I always admire the guys who can genre hop. I always admire the, the people that can t- do what needs to be done to serve the story, regardless of, of, you know, where it takes place at a time period. I mean, he's, he, like he's done, he did period pieces. He sort of ended his career with a lot of big sword and sandal, you know, period mm-hmm. pieces even. So he's, he's definitely a, a director, I think worthy of, uh, of reevaluation. Yeah, very true. And I was shocked uh, when I was doing research for this. I went to my overflowing stack of film books and then it went to a few different piles and how little was written about Anthony Mann in these books. Like I went to James Nairmore's More Than Night first and there's just two teeny sections Hmm. on Mann, one on uh, Raw Deal and one on T-Men. Uh, Silver Ursini's film noir, which is more like a photo book, basically, um, with a little bit of info. There was maybe a couple pages mostly devoted to T-Men and that. And it really took me to uh, film noir, the director, Silver and Ursini again, 
which they were just the editors. The writers of the Anthony Mann section were um, different writers. But yeah, that was a really good one. So if you'd like to learn more, I would recommend going to the phone book sized, essentially, <laughs> Phil Noir, the directors. Yeah, that's, yes. that's a good that's a good one. That's that's on my shelf right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think he gets overlooked a little too easily. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and you know, someone who who has like like we were saying, I think has as much of a directorial voice as an Alfred Hitchcock. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, you seem to be like an encyclopedia of film noir. So while I have you here, besides Anthony Mann, of course, or you can think of his other movies if they pop into your head. What are some of the like underground noirs or B films or ones that people who are noir connoisseurs but haven't really dug too deeply which which films would you recommend they check out well i think uh i've as we've established i'm definitely drawn toward the seedier side i'm definitely drawn towards the films that uh i think fall really squarely in the a lot of the typical noir things in terms of like i i love a tragic ending Yes, I, I love I, fatalistic noir. That's yes. yeah, my favorite. If I have no problem if you kill off the main character, no. not not a problem for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I th- I think that there are some actor, an actor like John Payne, I think, is someone who who uh, has been kind of unjustly forgotten. He's mm-hmm. a, a film of his called The Crooked Way. Uh, I absolutely adore. Uh, mm-hmm. And that one doesn't seem to pop up on a whole lot of lists. No. Uh, he's he's more well known, I think, for a film called Kansas City Confidential, which is yes, another fantastic that's a very good film. One. Yes, uh, I think Too Late for Tears is one that has oh, gotten a renaissance. Yes. I think you know the Film Noir Foundation did a, a, a restoration of that, so it it looks good again, and I think that's it does a, a great service because that is just a, oh, that's just a gritty and yeah. Um, I've I've seen also... I've seen people malign Elizabeth Scott for maybe not being the greatest actress, but oh, she's perfect for this she part. She is good. <laughs> yes, and I was going to say, Too Late for Tears, I think was also released as was it Killer Bait? Yes, that was the yeah the alternate title. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. love that one. Yeah, um, you know Charles McGraw, who who pops up in a, in a couple of these uh, man films that we've discussed. He's when he's a leading man, I've, I love him too. He's he's got a great noir that almost nobody talks about called Roadblock, which is Ooh. it's it's so it sort of ticks all the boxes of, of noir, you know, it's, it's got a femme fatale. He's, he's a, he's a crooked cop. I think he's like an insurance cop or whatever. Uh, You know, it's got the fatalistic ending. Uh, Roadblock is definitely one to seek out. It's, it's not easy to find. Unfortunately, a lot, a lot of these are not, Uh, but that, that would definitely be one that I think people should, should hunt down. Uh, I mean, you know, honestly, just look at uh, looking at my walls. I mean, I've got you know a poster for uh, a film called Tension with Audrey Totter. Is is that was a good one? Yes. Yeah. And and again, like you know, I I have to be real careful when I show my wife an old black and white movie because it's not her thing. Oh, okay. So I, I I pick and choose. So it's like, okay, I know you're gonna like Double Indemnity. I, I know yes. you're gonna like. I I know you're gonna like this. And yeah. and the one thing that I know I can show her that is always going to land is a, a vicious 
femme fatales. <laughs> oh, they're the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can, I can seek those out and, uh, and, and know that something in there is going to connect with her. And I think, yeah. I think that that happens for a lot of the casual noir fans. They want to see an evil woman doing evil things. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a film called night editor, which doesn't get a, a lot That's of talk. That's a good one too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> if, if your female lead can at some point wield an ice pick, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> the film is better for it. Yes. yes. It's like Joan Crawford, eat your heart out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this was so much fun. Are there any other films that you've watched lately, even modern day neo-noirs or crime films you want to recommend? Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, I, yes. And of course now I'm, I'm so Sorry. full up on, on stuff that I, if I'm practically blanking, what was... I do the same thing. People know I write about movies and they're like, oh, what have you watched lately? That's good. And you just, yeah, draw a complete blank. You're like, have I ever seen a film before? (laughs) It's too complicated, people. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things too, where it's like, it it doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a good film. It just, yeah, yeah, they they come and go so fast sometimes. I mean, you know, it is indicative. I think the things that, that do stick with you, like I remember, this is getting like real in the weeds and and I, I don't like to be that hipster film nerd guy, but mm-hmm. there was a, an, an Estonian film called November from about okay. five or six years ago. Uh, and I'll, I'll have to look up who the director was because I, I don't even know, but uh, it, it was so bizarre, so strange, so just otherworldly in a David Lynch guy, Madden sort of way uh, directed by uh, Rainier Sarnet okay. from 2017. Uh, and, but the most beautiful black and white photography m- maybe I've ever seen. Oh, wow. If, if you can hunt down this film, uh, even just, just watch the trailer, but yeah, November from from 2017 from Estonia, just watch the trailer and you'll get a sense of like, okay, this is some, it's somebody working on just another level. So, and, and films like that, I think mm-hmm. they, they burrow in and they, and they stick in there for that one little thing, whether it was, you know, the, the way it was shot or, or just one little story point. And, and, and I, I love it when a film latches on and clings to your brain and won't let go. Yes. Very good. Where did you see it? Is it streaming? It was streaming. I, I think I saw it on Prime uh, at first, uh, and I don't think it's on there anymore. So, uh, yeah, it might take some hunting, but I okay. think for for real serious cinephiles, it's 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 one to, to hunt down. It's not something I would show my wife, but <laughs> okay, gotcha. You, you, you got to love subtitles. You got to love a, a, a very surreal story. It's yeah, it's 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 bizarre, but it, mm-hmm. it's it's worth it if that's your if that's your bag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, listening to you made me think of, have you ever seen the film Jericho? That's Jericho with a W, uh, no. written and directed by Christian Petzold. Criterion no. Channel had it for a while there, and then they pulled it, and I'm not sure if you can even stream it anywhere, so now everyone listening is going to get mad at me, <laughs> but it's so good. It was in, like loosely inspired by The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, yeah, so I'm always interested, like you bring up the Estonian film or this, when 
other countries kind of make these noir or noir-esque films to take our archetypes and our stories. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's it's such an interesting thing. I mean, even back, uh, you know, when it was sort of happening in, in real time, you look at, at the, you know, French films from the 50s, the sort of post-war oh, yeah. films that were so directly influenced by the flood of, of American film, like where the term film noir was coined. Yep. And, and you see stuff that looks slightly familiar and yet it's got its own thing going on, uh, you know, and then, and, uh, you know, film noir foundation has, has been really on the ball with trying to resurrect some of the international films. And, uh, yeah. you know, they reached down to, to Argentina for some reason had a real robust sort of dark noirish little bubble there in the late 40s and 50s. Uh, oh, fascinating. I didn't yeah. know that. There's a, a film called The Bitter Stems, an Argentinian okay. film, wow. which is is well well worth seeking out if you're if you're a noir fan. Same thing. Like you, if you watch it with the sound off and you don't realize that they're not speaking English, like just the the, the visuals. cinematography and the visuals of it, you're like, oh yeah, this is totally a film noir. So yes, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to see that play out uh, across the, the the country. And you know Last year, I think at the beginning of of quarantine, I went on a real run of uh, Japanese noir. Oh, yeah, the Nikatsu, Nikatsu Studios. Noir. I have that box set. It's oh, so good. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, I think yeah. Any any film noir fan, like once you get beyond the standard, you know, here's yeah. the ten or fifteen films you have to see. I think those Nikatsu films are almost the first stop you need to make going international because they're they're so different with their sensibility and yet there's so much that's familiar it's not like watching a whole different thing mm -hmm. but there's so many of those films uh i don't know if mass is massacre gun part of that collection is that one of the ones saging no it has i am waiting rusty knife Take aim at the police van, cruel gun story, and a cult is my passport. But it's probably available, I'm guessing, on the Criterion channel. Or it, it might be, yeah. It's a, a Masker gun. Is another. It's another uh, Joe Shishido film. Okay. Who is just the most fascinating actor maybe ever. <laughs> I can watch <laughs> anything with Joe Shishido in it. But yeah, uh, you know these stories that are bleak. And, mm -hmm. and dark and and give you a glimpse into a, a completely different world that you know i that i certainly i never really knew about that you know that post-war japanese world where like i mean if you judge the films like gangsters were on every corner of yeah <laughs> of the, It'd be like running scary rampant or, yes i know i think japanese noir or nakatsu noir and French noir from this era are two really good stops to make when you're bridging to other countries. Anyone Absolutely. listening that wants to learn more. Yeah. Yes. Well, again, I want to thank you so much, Eric. I've probably eaten up too much of your afternoon, but this oh. was a real pleasure. And this I apologize great. for having a scattered brain right now because I'm listening to some construction go on. So <laughs> I do apologize for that. Oh, no, this is great. I had a lot of fun. Well, what better way to close out this episode than with some words written by John Alton, the cinematographer, in his seminal work, Painting with Light, which was first published in 1949. Shipwrecked figures on a raft in complete darkness, 
with only the phosphorescence of the ocean waves breaking the ink black of the pictures. In the distance, the fluctuating light of a lighthouse. The effect of passing auto headlights on the ceiling of a dark interior. Fluctuating neon or other electric signs. The light of a passing streetcar on an otherwise dark street. The hanging light on the ceiling of a cheap gambling joint. Searchlights of prisons or concentration camps. Flashes of guns in absolute darkness. The opening and closing of a refrigerator that has a light inside in a dark kitchen. The well-known street lamp. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.